0: So hello guys and welcome to the State of Sport Fishing presented by Bill Fish Group. My name is Chase Nieder. Today we're joined by Leo Chapman and special guest Jimmy Grant. For those of you that don't know Jimmy Grant, he's pretty much a fishing OG. He's been all around the world, traveled everywhere. Jimmy, if you want to go ahead and say hello.
1: Yes, sir. Good, good evening.
2: Thank you for joining us, Jimmy. You're like the godfather of, of what we do, so it's an honor I, to I have you on.
1: I don't think that's the case, but <laughs> <laughs> I like what I do. I like to go fishing. Wish I was yeah, fishing sir.
0: right now. Um, Jimmy, to to start things off, I had a question from the goat when I first heard you were doing this. You were here for the transition, you were, you know, leading the transition from J hooks to circle hooks. And I just wanted to ask you to talk a little bit about that switchover that you guys made and how that went and how learning to do that technique and all that kind of stuff. What kind of hooks were you using? Um, you know, What techniques were you guys lear- using the learning curve that you guys had to go through when you made that switch? In addition to that, Jimmy,
2: can you also give us a little info about like when this happened, which boat you were on to kind of get, you know, for people who don't know you said they have an idea of you are where you're from which boat you were running when this was happening for this, this whole transition
1: yeah well it's kind of funny because uh it's fine kind of funny because you know i had uh my own boat owner operator and then uh the circle hook uh that
2: was the trans- waterman right
1: yeah that, that this was on the, the waterman and uh anyway the circle hook transition was really uh going happening around i guess the early 2000s uh maybe 2004, about that time and uh the funny thing is uh everyone gave me all their j hooks you know when they were switching over to the j hooks uh switching over to circle hooks so i actually was behind i was actually behind uh say the curve but because i was uh using up the j hooks that everyone was giving me but eventually um it came to where you know people who were coming fishing with us you know wanted to use the j-hooks and then fishing uh, you know particularly down in Venezuela you know they wanted to practice with a j-hook so also uh, you know John Graves um, marine biologist had contacted me and wanted to do uh, research studies um, that was sponsored by the Virginia Institute of marine science on the uh, mortality rate, J hooks versus circle hooks. So, in that time is really when I transitioned over to uh, the circle hooks. So, honestly, I was a little bit behind, uh, but we did a little bit, um, you know, of circle hook fishing prior to that. But uh, anyway, obviously, we 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 did these studies. We did the studies with satellite tag and, and uh, the circle hooks was, were a much uh, higher or less i say less mortality rate you know we knew we found out that with the j hooks any sign of blood when you were releasing a fish or fish boat side you know those fishes those fish that were tagged with a satellite tax did not survive so uh anyway and over the years you know years fishing down in mexico we were fishing j hooks and we knew the mortality rate was was, I mean, conservatively saying 30%, but um, anyway, uh, it was at least 30%, if not more, if there was any sign of blood.
2: Interesting. Wow. And, and was that transition met with a lot of um, pushback or in the beginning? or was No, it-
1: everybody, well, everyone uh, switching over to circle hooks wanted to, you know, if you lost a fish, they wanted to blame the hook, you know, but the thing is, um, <laughs> The, the thing is, you're fishing with a hook, and the hook is designed so a fish can escape. Otherwise, it would be a trapping mechanism of some sort, or a net, you know, or a dangling uh, uh, mechanism or device. But anyway, a hook is designed so a fish can escape. That's what the sport sports uh, sportsman ship about. It is all about. Mm-hmm
0: yes sir and what what kind of hooks did you start out when you were first switching to the circle hooks what kind of hooks were you using
1: well i forget but you know eagle claw whatever hook it was that ronnie hamlin had used and pioneered or that was the hook that the
2: laser sharp one
1: um i don't i think that was before all that i forget the number of um you know i forget the exact number of the eagle claw hook but anyway um you know, whatever the standard eagle Hawk claw hook that we all used there in the beginning. I mean, now I know there's different brands and stuff. Um, I don't. I don't pay so much attention to that anymore uh, because I, I'm. I'm not really working in the cockpit as, as often uh, anymore. So anyway, I leave that up to to whatever mate I have fishing with me that particular day or time or whatever.
0: Yes, sir. And Jimmy also. When you guys switched to pulling dredges, how, how did you guys go about like your first time pulling dredges and all that kind of stuff? Cause for us, like now in our time, we grew up pulling, like for me example, I grew up pulling dredges, you know, and I always hear sitting at the dock. I hear people talking about back when you pulled a dredge off the cleat and stuff like that. And I'm just curious to hear how you guys evolved Dredge fishing. When was this happen? Well, when did it happen? Did it happen too for you?
1: you well, know. for for me, the first time I ever saw a dredge, I was fishing uh, up in Ocean City, Maryland for a light tackle, the Ocean City Light Tackle Club tournament, and I fished on a boat called the Fish Hawk, And Dave uh, Dodderwhite was the captain, and I remember Jimmy Fields was the mate. And then uh, anyway, they had a dredge with four armed dredge, which four uh what we call the tuna mullets you know the big uh big uh black mullets um you know probably 15 16 inches in length and that was the first time i ever saw a, a dredge but anyway we um really didn't get into uh, dredge fishing until probably i want to say i'm trying to remember here probably in the uh mid 90s and then um, you know we used uh, fish with them down to Mexico and stuff. And then anyway, I traveled around a lot, so uh, you know I took that dredge with me and showed you know different folks. And it was funny to see people uh, in Moorhead City, up in uh, North Carolina, Pirates Cove, um, Oregon Inlet. But anyway, uh, when people first saw that dredge, you know it was a big it was a big deal, you know, because it was a it was a pretty. Uh, pretty thing to see but now the treasures have gotten a lot more elaborate and, and uh bigger and um anyway what, um, that's, was that's was
2: this sorry to interrupt you was this post-venezuela or pre-venezuela
1: uh well you know this was pre-venezuela really i mean i mean i've been down there years prior to that but um you know the first time i remember the first time i went down there to fish the uh, grand slam tournament and we fished with um, Pedro. Uh, I'm drawing a blank on Pedro's last name on the Guy Rimba. Anyway, I went down with uh, Hans Kraas, and we brought down uh, some dredges, and we brought a cooler full of mullets and stuff. And uh, Anyway, that was the first time we fished, and we had really big uh, success with that, you know, prior to anybody down there pulling them. And then the following year, I, I worked as a mate on the uh, Temptress and we we took the tempest down there and we did pull a dredge there and uh and anyway it was just phenomenal fishing uh, of course that had an impact on the fish we were seeing mm-hmm. but um, anyway yeah it was it was fun times all right yeah, that so was, that was our uh, that was our advantage you know we had a little lead and edge on everybody in those days
2: hmm. all right so now that chase scratched his, his burning questions can you give us like a little background, kind of where you are from, how you grew up, how you got into the industry, um, how how did that play out for you?
1: Uh, well, anyway, I grew up fishing in uh, out of Ocean City, Maryland, and then my dad, you know, I fished with my dad. He had a outboard boat, and on uh, calm summer days, you know, we would venture offshore. What was a place you know called the Hot Dog? That was about our longest range here. Uh, some lumps that were <laughs> offshore Ocean City and then sometimes if the pretty water was pushed in there you would catch, you know, marlin and tuna and uh, anyway, the first day I ever caught a white marlin, uh, it was a very uh, I don't know, addicting experience so uh, ever since that day happened, that's all I wanted to do it's all I was interested in doing it was a very, um, had a big impact on, on my life, but from there you know, I went to college and stuff and then eventually, uh I gave up one school and then wanted to go fishing and uh, one winter uh, in North Carolina where I was going to college, you know, I just uh, packed up and went down to Florida and started uh, beating the dock, you know, looking for uh, freelance work, looking to get on boats, looking to wash boats, do anything to be seen on the boats and uh, get an opportunity to get an invite and, you know, work as a mate. And then one day uh somebody didn't show up for the boat uh on the charter dock in uh in uh palm beach at the time and then anyway uh you know someone picked me up and and you know went from there and uh anyway it's it's been uh 30 30 plus years 30 some years now that um that i've been fishing
2: (laughs) awesome and jimmy when again i've known you for a very 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 long time probably since i was 13 maybe Um, you know you always had a really really cool stories about Venezuela and I think myself chase um, guys who are I don't know maybe under under 30 years old we've all heard the stories but we've never been there unfortunately not Um, can you give us a rundown of how that was like when you started out as a mate was that kind of the go-to spot similar to kind of right now you know when you start traveling it's either Costa Rica or the DR was it always you know norm to go to Venezuela once you start traveling
1: well not really because anyway I I got a uh, that one particular uh, winter I packed up and went down to Florida um, I I got a, a job interview with a boat that was down in Grenada and anyway I met this captain up at uh, Merrick's boatyard in Pompano and uh, anyway he was there interviewing the uh, you know, for a mate, so I ended up going to, uh, I ended up getting a job, and uh, the boat was in Grenada, and then from, the plans were, from Grenada, the boat was going to go to Venezuela, and then from Venezuela on to Cozumel for the spring sail fishing season, so I um, got this job, I ended up in Grenada, we were there for maybe a couple Almost two months, not not even. But then we ended up um, going to Venezuela, and uh, we went to Margarita Island, and then from Margarita Island we went to Laguardia. And then uh, when I got to Laguardia, I don't know, it was just a, uh, I just really liked it. it. was. I just. I got a fuzzy feeling, you know. I liked. I liked it. It was very intriguing, you know. The place was beautiful. Had mountains, uh, you know. I had not experienced any of the fishing there. In fact, the fishing was slow. The water was kind of cold and green uh, water at that time when we were there and then anyway we were still just transient basically getting going to Cozumel and then anyway uh, when I first went to Venezuela I just wanted to get back there uh, and I did the following uh, following fall I ended up going back down there and uh, doing a little fishing stint for a couple weeks and then um, you know from that point on that's I just Strive to get back to Venezuela, and that happened again for me. Um, um, other than uh, we we did one trip where we I did one trip where I flew in there for another week the following year, and then in 1994 there was a boat in North Carolina, the Whopper Stopper, and uh, anyway the owner of the boat um, was going to Venezuela, and they knew I had been there before, and and I got a job on that boat going back down to Venezuela. So you know from that on every year I I just tried to in the fall that's where I wanted to be and uh, you know I got down there on other occasions but then uh, the next big opportunity was going down there on the temptress with uh, Chip Schaefer and I just knew I always wanted to go down there fishing with a a a boat captain uh, you know a fishing real fishing uh, uh, operation and and had that chance to go down there with Chip and uh, we just had spectacular it was a unbelievable season really i mean it was uh really really good fishing
0: what was your best days down there kind of like you know every everyone was talking about talk about you know costa rica and all you see all this kind of stuff but venezuela i've i've heard stories of just absolutely incredible fishing what were those days kind of like for you
1: well, Venezuela is not, I mean, it's not like the numbers you're catching. It's the variety that you're catching. I mean, every day is a different day. You'll go out one day and fish a certain, certain spot, and you'll, you know, have a bunch of sailfish bites. And then, the, and then the next day you go back out there in the same area or some other spot, and it'll, it'll be all white marlins. And then, you know, every day uh, every day you have a shot at possibly catching a grand slam. So, uh you know that's what makes the venezuela fishing so intriguing it's not the big numbers i mean i hear all the numbers nowadays the catch of catch a mag bay you know catching the big numbers in costa rica mexico has has changed uh, over the last 20 years um you know with these big numbers but venezuela was it's the variety and and the best the best fishing in venezuela everyone uh thinks of venezuela they thought about the fall fish in october uh, September, October, November, both from St. Thomas, after the summer season, they would leave and go down to Venezuela, but the best kept secret in Venezuela was the spring fishing, you know, the spring blue marlin fishing was insane, and uh, anyway, it, it was just epic uh, fishing, you know, as far as days and all, I mean, I don't know, I mean, there's there's so many good days of a variety, they have big uh, there's big yellowfin tunas that come through there in the wintertime. Uh, the water cools down, you know, usually below, probably below 78 degrees. And when that happens, it, it's it's a lot of tunas and big tunas. And then uh, and once that winter uh, water changes back to blue water and warms up to like 79.5 degrees, uh, you better hold on to your hat because that's when the blue water starts showing up. <laughs>
0: And they show up pretty big because I saw you know I saw a post the other day um, on Facebook and it was of I think a fifteen hundred pounder that was out of Venezuela, right?
1: Yeah, yeah. Well, there's all these stories of you know big fish and they catch in net boats down there. But there's been a couple of big uh, blue marlins caught. I know I know Ronnie Hamlin caught a thousand pounder there. There was another one that Ruben Hine, Dr. Ruben Hine, caught was over a thousand pounds, and uh, you know. I've seen some big ones, you know, eight hundred pound class fish, and and know uh, of some local fishermen, you know, guys you don't, know, no one would know their names. Um, anyway, a friend of mine, Antonio Ferreira, he's he's caught more blue marlin than any man I bet you on the planet Earth, but he's caught some big, uh, some nice fish over over the years. And um, anyway, but what Venezuela might lack in size, um, it makes up in in quantity you know i had a couple two on two occasions caught 10 blue marlins in a day in in venezuela and and you know prior to the fad phenomenon uh in costa rica and uh and in the dominican republic i mean catching double digit blue marlins is so much more rare than catching a thousand pound uh, blue marlin you know uh or a thousand pound black marlin, for that matter. But you know, catching double digit blue marlins um, fifteen years ago or so was uh, a pinnacle of sport, fi- a pinnacle of fishing, in my opinion. Mm-hmm.
2: And what was what was the marina like? It was, was it similar to like a Capcana marina to a Los Santos marina, where it was jam packed with boats, you know, traveling well, boats.
1: Yeah, the fall season, there's usually probably about, uh, you know, anywhere from 25 to 35 visiting American boats, you know, or, or, you know, boats from the States and Puerto Rico. And then in the springtime, maybe there'd be a dozen visiting boats from, again, Puerto Rico and um, Mm -hmm. in the States. But um, again, I say the spring was the best kept secret. Uh, but anyway um you know that all changed with the political uh the, the uh well the political um situation there mm-hmm. finally you know kind of pushed everybody out of there it wasn't that they were not welcome to um you know Americans weren't welcome there it just uh anyway it it became very problematic to be there mm-hmm. that was the situation we we it didn't run quote uh you know Chase people out of their American boats in particular. Mm-hmm. You know, all the local fishermen love the boats that were coming there. They've provided a lot of employment, a lot of work. You know, there's many guys that are fishing here today all over the world. You run into them in Costa Rica, uh, Dominican, even in Florida, stuff. You know, there's a group of guys that uh, are, you know, top of their game and traveling and working um, outside of Venezuela these days. And they all learned and started, uh, you know, by washing boats,
2: champion boats. At the end of the day, correct? Yeah, I've, I've I've met numerous guys who all learned in Venezuela. I was just with Eliezer. I'm not sure if you know him, but he's the man, the Betsy. Uh, sure. Yeah, Elie is really cool. Bill Lyle, Paiva, Elicano, all those guys, legends.
1: Yeah, absolutely. People don't wouldn't even know them. I've had some incredible fishing with uh, all, a lot of those guys you just named. That I, I can't even tell you how many, uh, how great the fishermen are down there. You know, of course, you know food show
2: and Oh yeah, TV.
1: Of uh, there's all kinds of folks uh, that are uh, that are great, great fishermen, and they've so, some fishing that you can't even uh, can't even comprehend.
0: So, Jimmy, that that brings me to the question what what is your favorite fishery you know is is it gonna be venezuela is it gonna be you know fishing the mid-atlantic and ocean city because that's home or what's your favorite fishery
1: oh no absolutely ben, uh absolutely venezuela in, in by far is you know Oregon inlet is uh Inlet is definitely at the top of the list the, the beautiful thing about Inlet is the the caliber of fishermen there you know you're you, you have the best. Actually, the best uh, fishermen in the world are all, you know. I would uh, definitely say uh, are from Oregon Inlet or have experience in Oregon Inlet. I, I'm, I'm uh, been lucky to spend time up there fishing, mating when I was younger, and, uh, and anyway, have the greatest respect of every uh, guy that runs a boat out of Oregon Inlet. Yeah. <clears throat> the competition is uh, is fierce, and uh, just on every day, daily basis, and. Anyway, those guys are the best in the business, and it's just uh, good to be around uh, people like that in the fishing world.
0: So, Jimmy, when you uh, when you think back on all these, you know, trips that you've done and all that kind of stuff, what what are like the you know the days that stand out to you? What's the you know, I know catching ten blue marlins in a day that's the, was the pinnacle, you know. Um, but what are those days that you were like, whoa, we crushed it today, you know, that you'll never forget?
1: Yeah, well, anyway, one, one the one season on the Temptress in uh, 1999, in 52 days, we caught 38 Grand Slams. And uh, one time we caught a quadruple. Uh, one day we caught a quadruple grand slam. We had one group that fished five days. I remember we caught a quadruple grand slam. We caught a triple grand slam, two double grand slams, and a single slam in the five days. And uh, anyway, that was just great, um, great fishing. Uh, I don't know, uh, you know, I like I like catching those big tunas down there in Venezuela. That's always fun to do, and I like to see people's uh, ex- expression on their face when you throw a 200 pound yellowfin on the deck they uh their eyeballs get real big and that thing starts flopping on the deck so <laughs> that's a lot of fun too. What, what's that
2: bank called again where the people fish in venezuela el placer right yeah la, la, la
1: guaria
2: bank la Guardia bank got it and that, that and that was it is that the only like location that you guys fish was it one well, bank
1: yeah, there's another spot called Las Caracas Bank, Las Caracas Bank, and uh, but anyway, you know the bank is just a geographical um, reference. So most of the time we're fishing offshore of the bank where the uh, the bank co- <clears throat> bank comes up to fifty or uh, fifty fathoms on the top of it, and then on the offshore side of it, it rolls off to uh, say. 100 fathoms, and then where it rolls off to 200 fathoms, that's where a lot of the really good fishing, a lot of the really good blue marlin fishing is out there in 200 fathoms. And uh, so, anyway, we fished in an area northeast of the bank, actually, uh, north and northwest of the bank, and then west of the bank, kind of inshore, there was another spot off the power plant. Um, Maybe people have heard of the power plant, it gets really deep up close to the uh shore, and uh, that's a good spot for blue marlins and uh, white marlin fishing. But uh, you, you got a big area to look around, you know. Everyone, it's not just you just don't go to the bank and put the baits out and start catching fish, it's not that simple. Gotcha.
0: What was it like back then, like all fishing days, you know, on your ladies and all that kind of stuff? What did you guys get into in Venezuela? Was there you know was it as lively as a place like you know florida or you know did you did you actually have stuff to go do or what did you guys find yourself getting into
1: oh no venezuela was the best you know caracas was a very cosmopolitan town and uh, the nightlife was awesome you know i'll just leave it that the more uh miss universes in the uh, more miss universes have come from venezuela than any other place <laughs> in the world but, Tells you how beautiful the women are down there. It answers your question, Chase. Uh, yeah. So anyway, uh, but uh, it was um, always fun. There's good, good food. Um, you know, a lot of good restaurants. So we, you know, got in our our comfortable um, area there and went out. And, and you know, people recognized the in town, and it was real friendly. And there was no issues. You know, I think security is an issue nowadays in, in Venezuela, but um, back. Back then, it didn't seem to be a problem at all.
0: Back then, you guys didn't have you know eight thousand dollar LPs sitting on the boat, you know, and all that kind of stuff. And it's just one of those things. Like nowadays, for you know, for a boat to go down there, it's I don't think anyone really, everyone wants to do it, but I don't think anybody can explain, you know, justify it right now.
1: No, we we, we well. Th- let's just get that straight. I mean, there's 20 years of uh, gen- there's a whole generation of people that in the in in Venezuela in the area where we fish that have not seen, you know, gringos in town walking around. So anyway, it's going to take. Uh, I I don't know. I, I don't I don't anticipate anytime soon that anyone's going to be going back, and it's going to be a long, um, you know. Uh, transition to get things back security wise and uh, and um, anyway, and the facilities to accommodate uh, foreign boats, you know i i, I don't I don't uh, I'm not getting my hopes up. I don't know. you know I, I wish that would be um, different, but i uh, anticipation of that, that happen not anytime soon.
0: it I mean, in all honestly, it may not even be in our lifetime, you know for us to see that which is really upsetting because, I mean, like you said, it, it's just one of those places that, you know, I, I mean, want to experience personally, and I know a lot of other people do as well. And, and they're you know, still biting. They're still oh, biting. Oh,
1: I'm sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, I talk to, uh, to talk to friends down there weekly, you know, absolutely. I get but some, you know, t- I get some t- news t-
2: here and there as well. And, and, you know, these guys go out and literally, Chase, they go out in their center console boats, and they pull three lures and they'll catch four blue marlin.
1: Yeah. yeah, well, the thing is, uh, no, nobody you know what the problem. Um, when we last uh, left Venezuela, I, I was trying to be the last gringo there, but anyway, the cacique the outlasted me in, in Venezuela. I wanted to be the last gringo to leave, but anyway, the problem um, was not uh, that they were um, not welcoming foreign boats, the problem became fuel became an issue being of uh, the availability of fuel. So the availability of fuel was what shut down Venezuela, whereas uh, they didn't, you know, the, think about it. The, the foreign uh, recreational sport fish recreational boat um, was the last boat on the totem pole that would be a priority to get fuel. So in Venezuela, they had a real sh- shortage of fuel believe it or not, sitting on the largest fuel reserves of the world. And, uh, you know, fuel just was not available. So they were cutting, uh, you know, trimming off the, the pork, let's say, as far as uh, boats uh, consuming fuel. Uh, and that the first one on the list, the chopping block, were the foreign visiting boats. You know, all the commerce in Venezuela is done on the highway, and they don't have a freighter, coastal freighter system, railroad system, anything of the sort. Uh, had to uh, you know ration their fuel basically
0: I mean we're kind of going through that right now
1: (laughs) I I hear in North Carolina uh, right now they're having some issues yeah what's what's going
2: on over there Chase can you explain it to me like what what I've been seeing on social media as well
0: so as of right now from what I've heard um, you know, I haven't looked into it too much, but there was a hack into a pipeline along the East coast and, and shut the pipeline down and that's caused the shortage of fuel. Um, you know, cause it's still not up and running. Uh, you know, I, have heard that the guys in North Carolina, they're keeping it to charter boats only right now for the most part. Um, you know, Oregon inlet guys, it's the only people that really can get fuel or charter boats is what I heard. I don't know if that's true or not. Please feel free to fact check me. I have no idea. But that was what I heard most recently. Um, You know, we've gone around to like to fuel our boat, you know, that we just got back from Cat Island on. We went and had to ask, hey, do you guys have enough fuel uh, to get the boat ready to go to Charleston, you know, next week? Will we we have fuel? Do we need to fuel now? Do we need to fill a bladder? All that kind of stuff. And, you know, it depends on where you are um, right now on whether or not I think on how low everything is. I think North Carolina is kind of having a shortage a little worse than we are here. But I I, I don't know completely. Um, you know, Jimmy, he may, you may know more than me because um, you're talking to a lot more captains than I am. But I don't know if what... I don't even know what to think about it right now honestly. I don't know when we're going to get fuel back, you know. It's, it's hard to tell right now. But it's it's something that we're just going to have to overcome, you know. Uh I don't think it's going to it's not going to shut programs down, I don't think. Um but I mean it's it's definitely a real issue. I mean there's have people worried about that,
1: Jimmy. I I really don't not not up to snuff on any of it.
2: Gotcha. Here, yeah, you're you're still in the Venezuela days, huh fueling up uh sixty four Spencer for five hundred dollars <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah well that was uh, that was uh you know it was basically about ten cents a gallon and um ten twelve cents a gallon but uh I don't think that's the case anymore they, they have a real shortage of it
0: you know? It'd be really nice to go back to that kind of fuel prices <laughs> that would be oh, a lot
1: crazy. You know, I, I had uh, the the Whitaker boat. I had uh, never ever ever put more than uh, fifteen dollars a day uh, spent more than fifteen dollars a day and uh, you know f- fuel for a fishing day. So basically, I'd fill up every two days because I kept my back tank uh, empty and I fished off my front tank. And uh, anyway, I, I never put more than uh, thirty dollars in two days of fishing ever.
0: Wow that's that's unheard of now now i look at fuel prices now and i'm like oh my gosh this one's gonna be like 1500 bucks 1600 bucks just to fill fill you know top off our back tanks and that's you know only after running to the corner and back from stewart you know and you think about when you're fishing 80 miles out of ocean city you're running i i didn't look at any of the fuel bills but i know it ain't cheap if we get back to those kind of days that'd be really nice But, Jimmy, what are you uh, what are you getting into nowadays?
1: Um, my next uh, deal is the Big Rock in Moorhead City. So anyway, um, that's coming up here soon in three, four, four weeks, and uh, that's what I got going on.
2: Which boat are you on? Excuse me. Which boat are you going
0: to be on?
1: A boat called the Tail Gunner. Hmm.
0: Are you still uh, uh? are you still running the Cinco?
1: Well, we don't have a boat right now, but anyway, uh, if a, pro- a proper boat comes along, hopefully we'll, we'll get back in business. But right now, we're just, um, you know, we're looking. There's not much available. Nothing's available in the, um, in the um, custom boat world anyway. So uh, it's been that way for a couple of years. Hmm.
0: Yeah, you guys you guys had a what was it a 59 Spencer Greenhall, I think.
1: Well, we had a 60 yeah, briefly for 7 months, but before that we had a 66 and then before that we had a uh Sunny Briggs, a 56 Sunny Briggs.
0: Gotcha. Other than other than Venezuela, Jimmy, uh where else have you traveled? Jimmy, wait for, for the record. Don't you
2: have the record in Cap for for most amount of blue marlin ever caught in a day, or is that uh, Miguel? No,
1: we the record's twenty three, but uh, we caught twenty three fish uh, one particular day. Twenty two of them were blue marlins, and one was a uh, white marlin. Ooh. And uh, anyway, yeah, but uh, Miguel and the Bluebird caught twenty three, uh, so that that would be the record, but. We did catch twenty-two.
2: Sorry to cut you off, but I have to ask, what was that like catching twenty-two blue marlin in one day? Well, you
1: know, it was just uh, it was just three of us on board, and uh, I'm sorry, let me take that back. There was four of us on board. We had our watchdown boy, our Dominican watchdown boy, was with us that day too. But anyway, basically, there was three of us, and um, anyway, it was just um, you know there were small blue marlins, but every time you the base back in the water and went back to the mark where we got our first bite we you know catch one or two we never i think the first fish of the day first event of the day we caught three but every other event was either a single or double and um anyway yeah that was a non-stop action non-stop action and uh again there was three of us and the funny thing is uh um the time that the all times I've caught double digit blue marlins, there were only three of us on board. Um yeah. Busy day. <laughs> but um yeah, that was uh that was a lot of action. But again it was small, bunch of small blue marlins. But they bite they bite the teasers like they, they think they're big when they bite the teasers, put it that way.
2: And oh yeah. I remember, I remember back then it was it was a span of a week I think and it was you guys on the Waterman and it was Miguel Tirado on the Bluebird. It was you
1: Yeah. You well, too, M- right? M- Miguel caught his fish in October. We we were in January when we caught ours. And oh, okay. uh, um the other thing that day that day we were fishing uh, uh Miguel was actually fishing that day and uh we set out in two different spots and uh anyway i was getting bites and he was getting bites wherever he was but he and uh tell toby was fishing that day darren chafing mm-hmm. and uh <clears throat> those two guys ended up fishing to me and uh anyway we all were ended up in the one spot there was only three of us out that day but um yeah it was a fun fun day a lot of action
0: i can't even imagine what it's like the the to even see 23 blue marlins in a day i'm headed down there this year and i i hope i get that opportunity i would love to see something like that
1: you know yeah, that we'll- was, well, I, <laughs> I i kind of uh, always uh anyway it was um you know fishing around the fads so that's kind of puts an asterisk on it but our, our big days in venezuela we obviously we had no fads there was no such thing as fishing around fads so but um and now nowadays, everyone's got the uh, Omni Furuno Omni sonar, so that kind of puts another asterisk by the, these big catches too. So <laughs> uh, that's a big, uh, big uh, advantage, you know, having fishing around fads number one and fishing with the Omni uh, sonar.
2: What do you? What are your thoughts on Omni sonar? As someone who's done it for so long and has done it successfully without it, are you someone who embraces the new technology and says, you know? Is us to the new heights or um, are you kind of, you know,
1: pushing back against it? I don't, I don't know. I, I have mixed uh, feelings about it. I mean, obviously, we are all got to go there uh, to be competitive. But um, I think it applies better in a place where you're fishing, maybe where you're more by yourself, but not with a fleet of boats. Mm-hmm. But um, human nature is not going to allow us to to uh, do that it's fish as a a fleet or fish with uh, information of other boats and you know looking at your bottom machine and stuff or looking for birds looking for bait looking for rips looking for current conditions i mean all that's going by the wayside um with the sonar so uh you know um i don't know i think i'd rather uh no one goes fishing to spend a day on the water and just go fishing uh you know, prop your feet up and wait for a blue marlin bite. Now everyone's, you know, uh, uh, I want to say, like obsessive, compulsive with looking for fish. You know, looking at the machine. And um, yes, yeah, it's, it's definitely changing. And uh, I think I want to stick to the go kind of retro on on the fishing. I'd rather go to a place and fish with a fleet of boats where they don't have the, omni uh, um, sonar um, technology. To, personally, but. Um, We'll see i gotta gonna have to adapt and and move forward like everyone else but um
0: it, it's, you know, it's it's good. kind of
1: it's kind of uh, it's kind of uh taken away from being a fisherman you know it's more like playing a video game, and anyway, there'll be times when your fishing skills or what you learn from you know the captains you fished before with, uh, you know, that will apply. But, uh, again, it's, it's becoming like video games. You know, you can buy dredges now, you know, we used to all make our dredges. I mean, you can call up Bill Pino, call up squid nation and get a mail order, uh, uh, dredge, you know, mailed to you overnight, you know, pay with a credit card and, um, you know, go fishing somewhere and put that thing out there. And the next thing you know, you're getting a bunch of bites, but, uh, yeah, it's changed.
0: Jimmy, when, you know, I, I, I don't want to say I grew up, but I learned to fish without a sonar. And now I I look at, and then I've fished on boats with sonar now. Um, you know, it's, it definitely has an advantage, you know, and I can see the difference in the boats that, you know, have them and difference in the boats that don't have them. Um,
1: yeah. How about. How about the, how about the guys that are hiring a, you know, sonar uh, technician or somebody just to run the sonar, you know, and that's, that's kind of uh, you know, I don't know. That's, that's, uh, it's beyond me, uh, where it's all going right now as far as that, that goes.
0: Well, yeah, now you're, now you're adding another person to the crew. You get, you know, two mates in the cockpit, a guy in your tower, a guy running your sonar, a captain, you know, it's where where does it go from here you know
1: it, it's crazy
0: especially it's crazy. you know I, i've heard i've heard rumors and I don't, I don't know if you've heard about this but now i've heard about a seminar that just came out that now sport fishing boots are thinking about you know i think one of them put one in i don't know who it was and instead of seeing out 1200 feet they can see out 3000 feet um yeah you know and they said you know that they were using them on commercial tuna boots and stuff like that and it's just the the rate at which this is going now is just insane and yeah
1: i don't know i don't know where the enjoyment is going to be and all that i mean uh i don't know i guess you know i don't know i i i I, i'm not there yet so i'm still sticking to looking for birds and conditions and marking bait and that's uh maybe I'm maybe I'm a fool but that's I, I want to enjoy my my fishing I don't want to make it a I don't know that sounds like work to me
0: <laughs> oh. you, you well know, you,
2: you gotta do both I think you know because at the end of the day you got to know where to put your bait in the water if, if you're in the BR you know you go through the fads and you you're probably in the right spot right and, but if you're it's well. somewhere like Venezuela would where there's no fads, or you know, some areas not City. Really like a bank. Yeah, you gotta you gotta look with your eyes and and, and spot good water. But, and
1: plus, there's this one phenomenon that we all uh, have or experience or part of fishing, and it's called luck. Yeah. You know. Oh yeah. So, um, yeah, I I don't know. I think that you're gonna see that boats are gonna drop out of the tournament fishing or investing in a because they, if they don't have the hundred and fifty dollar, one hundred thirty thousand dollar omni sonar, they are not going to feel competitive, and they're not going to put their money up, you know, for the um, the Calcutta. I think that I think we we've seen a peak of the the um, fishing tournament, uh, tournament scene, and the and the and the group's going to get smaller, and the participation is going to get smaller because of. The sonar is what I think we're going to see,
0: you know. You know, Jimmy, that that brings up a, Jimmy. That brings up a really good point of you know the the twenty thousand dollar Calcutta in the White Marlin Open, and they're saying now that the purse could be up to seven seven million dollars this year, is what they're expecting the purse to be, and you know, at what point does that just become Almost obscene, you know, kind
1: of. I don't know, but you know, the, the the a guy like me, I cannot afford to not not fish the white bar open because uh, you win, you know, if you get lucky and win that tournament. I mean, it's a it's a life changing uh, payday for a guy like me, anyway. But the um, yeah, I, I I don't know, you know, I don't know um, where where. <laughs> where it all stop but um yeah that's um uh, yeah that's crazy but I think that's for the biggest fish is that correct
0: um i I haven't even looked into into it to be honest um
1: yeah that's just a side calcutta for the biggest uh you know another calcutta entry level I think for the biggest one if I if I uh, read it correctly
0: yeah I I heard about it and I was like holy crap this thing's you know I mean even if you get a you know, only a couple boats in there, you're, you're looking at hell i you know, at least a million, $2 million with, you know, a quarter of that fleet in that Calcutta. And it's, you know, it's hard for, you know, a mate who's traveling, in my opinion, you know, I'm, I'm not going to the White Marlin Open this year and I'm sitting here going, holy crap, I could go there and, you know, if I get lucky, man, I can make some money, you know, and, i think that might turn the direction some of the mates go and whether or not it turns the direction of the way some of boats travel now because they want to go be a part of a chance to win as much money as that i don't know if it's going to grow this fleet or if it's going to make the fleet get smaller i i don't know
1: yeah i i think with the sonars you're going to see the uh the 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 entry uh cut is getting uh, you know less less participation maybe they'll get bigger uh, you know cost more to get in there but maybe there'll be less uh, boats participating i don't know the whole tournament fishing scene has changed so much uh, just it doesn't appeal to me like it once did and uh, you know even the sailfish tournaments in florida the trolling tournaments they've gotten crazy with all the rigging and and dredges, and then you I got a tower man. You got two or three mates. You got professional anglers. You know, holding the rod all day. It's, it's just uh, to me that's not uh, fishing. Um, you know how how fishing should be.
2: But Jimmy, I'll counter counter your argument by saying that um, the sonar helps you find fish, but it's not going to you know really indicate you what it, exactly the size of it. It's not. It's not like you're. Gonna- a fish on the on a sonar, right, Chase? And you're gonna be like, Oh, this one this is a small white marlin, so I'm gonna, you know, not waste my time on it.
1: No no doubt, I uh no doubt. Um no, so the tournaments like uh, the the Big Rock, White Marlin Open, uh the mid Atlantic, Pirates Cove tournament, that's um not gonna apply where there's a big fish, uh you know, a big fish uh involved into the prize money. You know, pyrescope is a little a mix of both, but um, anyway, that um, you know, that's gonna, that's gonna, uh, yeah, those tournaments are, there's still gonna be luck involved, no doubt, in all those big, those tournaments, and they are the big money tournaments. They're the only ones I really enjoy or really look forward to fishing in anymore, myself personally, um, as I get yeah,
0: older. I've heard, I've heard rumors lately, Jimmy, that some guys in the golf. Have gotten good enough with their sonars that when they pull up to rigs and they, you know, they won't set baits out. They'll just see if they'll drop the sonar and see if there's a blue marlin there. And then, with that being said, some of them, and this is, you know, rumors and dog talk. I don't know how true it is, but I've heard that they can tell if a fish is over 500 pounds on their sonar. Um, Yeah, I don't.
1: Yeah, I I don't know. Yeah, that's kind of funny. um, Funny way to go fishing if you ask me but uh, I I do remember hearing the story I think it was Jason Buck a story of where he marked uh, when I first heard about the omni sonar he marked a fish on the sonar and followed it you know for miles I I forget what I heard you know but something teen miles and then finally got the bite out of whatever fish he, he was marking at least they think they got the bite out of that fish and it was a 600 pounder and they won you know a bunch of money but um yeah, that's not. I I just want to go fishing. I I, I like fishing where you don't see uh, very many boats in the horizon and you don't hear uh, too much um, you know chatter on the radio. And you're getting bit. Your teasers are barking. With uh, yes, blue on That's that's my speed.
0: Uh, you know, Jimmy. As we uh, wrap up here, I'm going to ask you a question that we ask a lot of our guests. Uh, you know, if you're a young guy trying to get into this industry right now, um, the way the industry is today, what's your best advice to someone who wants to get into this?
1: Well, there, there's room for, there's always room for someone who's willing to work. Number one, and then uh, you know, if if I I would go to Oregon Inlet and beat the dock in Oregon Inlet and try and get on a charter boat there. If you can uh, fish with the Oregon Inlet fleet on on uh, you know one of the boats, or get get on one of the uh, the top boats there, uh, you, it, it's very rewarding, and, and uh, the experience is just um, you know just fishing around a group of guys that have the camaraderie, and fishing with another uh, with a group of guys that are that love it as much as you do. Uh, that's what I would say. Go, go to uh, Oregon Inlet. If you can make it in Oregon Inlet, you can make it anywhere.
0: That that seems to be, you know, what a lot of people say. And, uh, you know, I've always looked up to the guys that have had I've never had the opportunity to fish Oregon Inlet um, other than just passing through, um, you know, while we were traveling or something like that. And I, I – it's an incredible fishery, you know I hope that I have the opportunity to fish it one day um but Jimmy, we can't thank you enough for coming on uh We are honestly in your debt for having you come on here. Your stories have been phenomenal uh I know Leo is very appreciative as well uh yeah
2: Jimmy, i mean uh I've known you for a long, long time from a very young age, and you've always been incredibly kind to me and uh yeah, I'm just very, very grateful, especially for your support with the brand since the beginning. Um I've just known you for a long time and you've always been kind, so like since a young kid, so I can't thank you enough.
1: Yeah, I can't I can't I can't wait get I can't wait to get back to Curacao, Get back to Aruba.
2: Yeah, you I back, think your boat's in, there waiting for you, isn't it? <laughs>
1: back in uh, back in that latitude.
2: Yeah. <laughs>
1: <laughs> for sure. All
2: right. Thanks, Jimmy. Yes, sir. Thank you. Anytime. Bye, bye.
1: Yo, know, uh, take care.